Turn with me to the Psalms again. This summer we are spending time in the Psalms. We will just we won't even do ten percent of the Psalms uh, because there are 150 of them. But we're going to try to hit some. How do you say some are important and some are not? But we're we picked 12. And that's what we did. Okay, so pick 12 or 13. And the next one is Psalm 8. Uh, on page 450. What's interesting is that after the first two psalms, which are basically introductory, Psalm 1 that talks about the righteous man meditating in God's word, and Psalm 2 talking about God's coming king who will rule the world and uh, bring about the demise of all kingship that opposes God, all pride. These are introductory to kind of launch us into the whole world of the Psalms. Well, the next uh, quintet of Psalms, the next five are laments. And they deal with uh, the pain and suffering of God's people and the persecution that God's people suffer from others. And at the end of this series of laments, notice in verse 17 of chapter 7, I'll give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And so chapter 8 virtually serves as an example of that. Okay, I will sing praise to him. And then we roll out this first great hymn of praise that we find in the Psalter. And it has some very unique features. But one I want to just clue you in on from the beginning is it celebrates... God's sovereign rule that will ultimately destroy all that opposes him. So, in that regard, it's just the perfect psalm at the perfect place after this quintet of psalms that lament the suffering that we are under in persecution. And now a psalm that declares, nonetheless, God is Lord He was Lord from the beginning of creation, and he continues to that final day. So, a little bit of the context that leads up to Psalm 8. Many of you know from your past in churches, Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name. Come on, let's do it. (laughs) It always comes to mind. I can't help it, you know, every time I hear a great hymn that is borrowed from this song. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength or established stronghold because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or perhaps God. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. And crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along 
the paths of the seas. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, as we come to this word, may we enter into the astonishment with which it begins. How majestic. And Lord, may we explore how your majesty is also shown forth not only in creation, but in our personal relationship to you and in the relationship you have given us to your creation. Oh, may we be all the more astonished at creation and our amazing place in it by your grace and creation. Amen. So, we're going to begin then with God's majesty in creation, which is uh, the first couple of verses. And then uh, we're going to talk about God's kindness to us in creation. And that will take up verses 3 and following. And then finally, we're going to talk about a New Testament passage in Hebrews 2, God's kindness to us in Christ. So, His majesty, our place in it, And then our place restored in Christ. So some have called this a stargazer psalm. He doesn't really mention the sun. So it probably is taking place at night or pictured at night. And all of us have felt that, right? Been a pitch back black. And at that point, there were no lights hardly anywhere at night, of course. So it was always pitch black. They're always faced with this display of glory. And yet it's also called not only a stargazing hymn, but a soul-searching hymn. Stargazer hymn and a soul-searcher hymn. Because as he stares in awe at the creation, he immediately asks this question, what? Is man that you would show us any attention at all? And yet, look how you've made us. So, this phrase, what is man, is like the axis on which the whole psalm turns as it points up to God. And then it begins to ask the question, how could we have a place? And yet, we have the most exalted place. So, it's interesting also, you can't see it in the English, but When he says, how majestic, it's this Hebrew word, ma. Well, the word ma is repeated in verse uh, verse 4, okay? What is man? So it's translated how. So it's ma in the middle, ma in the end, ma. So that's kind of the structure, okay? How majestic in all the earth. What is man? Look at his place. (gasps) Oh, how majestic. That's the flow of this gorgeous, gorgeous hymn. And it's interesting because this is the only hymn that begins Lord. Might surprise you, did me, you know, Lord. And it's spoken directly to God. Most praise hymns are calling on people. Let us praise him or praise the Lord. Here, it's directly addressed to God. And what's interesting about that is that usually hymns of lament begin with Lord. And so it's carrying the same personal nature of a lament into praise, showing that 
We are in conversation with this glorious God. He is, as he says, our Lord. We're in covenant relationship with him. We can converse with this God who made all things because he's our Lord. And he uses these personal pronouns. You, your. So this is, this is a direct prayer to God. It's not about God. It is directly interacting with God. So it's, it's wonderfully unique in that regard of how personal it is. And the word name, as you may know, is the way they talk about the unveiling of God, who he is. His name contains who he is and reveals who he is, like a bride taking off her veil to reveal her beauty to her husband. So God reveals his beauty to us in creation. He unveils himself to us in creation, the astonishing beauty of God. And so he cries out uh, about this majesty. And one older writer says, if we are so ravished, we will not pray in a sparing and frigid manner. (laughs) Frigid kind of has particular meaning in our context of marriage, doesn't it? But I think it applies in our relationship with God, right? Because we are married to this God. We're to be intimate and in that sense, spiritually romantic and involved and astonished, ravished with him. Not to praise him in a spare and frigid manner. If this psalm says anything, doesn't it say that from the beginning to the end? Oh, how majestic. Oh, how glorious. And all of these words are words of kingship, glory and majesty. Um, and it describes him in the most exalted ways as the king over the whole earth. And it's interesting that he's called our God. I love that moment in Peter Pan when Jack finally, it dawns on him because he's had such disdain for his dad. He won't spend time with him and ends up hardly will even listen to his dad because his dad never comes through and any promises. And he's sitting there in Hook's outfit And it finally dawns on him. My dad is Peter Pan. You know, it just blows him away. My dad, this dad, he's Peter Pan. He really is Peter Pan. And that's the feeling here. This Lord that made all things, he's he's ours. He belongs to us. He's our Lord, our King. Who gives himself to us so freely. We're in this personal relationship with this God. And his majesty is shown even in the way it describes his creation. Uh, Down in verse 3 when he says, I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. Okay, so it shows how personally and intimately God is involved in his creation. I remember years ago... Uh, my my son JD working on a tiny little uh, skateboard. You know, it was a toy skateboard, and he was using a tiny screwdriver, screwing in a tiny screw on the tiny skateboard. That's kind of the feel here. God, he's just using his little digits, you know, to make these things, these suns and galaxies. And what's so amazing about that in the context is. The pagan nations worshipped the sun, right? They worshipped the moon. And here is the psalmist saying, 
Oh, you, you, worship, you worship the sun and the moon? You mean those things that God made with his fingers? Those little objects that reflect the majesty and beauty? You worship this instead of him? What? This came into that culture like gangbusters. Not in the sense that all nations responded to it, but as a philosophical, theological Beauty, it just held the field. There was nothing like it had ever been said or done except in this word as the true God is being revealed here. So it it shows the hands-on nature of it. He didn't delegate this to someone else. His fingers, right? So many of the pagan things had uh, Gnosticism, for instance, that there were all these layers between God and the creation because the the creation is so terrible it shouldn't have ever been made and here we have no 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 this glorious god he was hands-on just like in the incarnation right he didn't make something to go die for him or die for his people he came himself in the flesh creation and redemption the same thing he's he's personally involved and when you think about using these terms he's fingers to make these things and all the more now uh, do we understand this because we have some idea of uh, the hugeness of creation. One uh, model that Carol Vanderlook, who's an astronomist, gave us is that the sun, picture the sun as the size of a grapefruit. So gigantic, size of a grapefruit. The earth is 35 feet away and one inch away is a grain of sand. Well, the earth is a grain of sand, okay? Grapefruit, grain of sand. And an inch away is a speck of sand. Okay, the nearest star, which is another grapefruit, 1,600 miles away. And there are, they estimate, they don't even know, they can't even count them all, somewhere between 200 and 400 billion stars in our one Milky Way galaxy. And there may be that many galaxies. Okay. So imagine just on the size of a grapefruit how, and they were 1,600 miles away from each other, how big that structure would be with two to 400 billion of them. Now grow it up to the size of a sun. And all you have is one speck in the universe, one part of the large cluster of 50 galaxies that we belong to, and they're Hundreds of billions of those. Well, work of his fingers. Work of his fingers. Right? You worshiping all these things? No. They're the work of his fingers. This majestic. Oh, the majestic God. Oh, the majesty of this God. And what's interesting about this passage is how, and this, this may bend your mind a little bit, so it won't be the first time I've done that, all right? Okay, so, but it's not me. Hopefully, I'm, I'm just sharing the word. Notice it says, you've established a stronghold. I think that's the best translation. It's literally strength, but probably established a stronghold or a fortress because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Isn't it interesting that in the context of creation, He talks about those who are opposed to the avenger and the oppressor. Now, one aspect of this 
is to show that from the beginning, his sovereign creation implies there will be a sovereign rule that will ultimately and finally ruin all of his foes. So this is not only a picture of the beauty of creation, but it's a picture from the beginning of the warfare of creation. Now, think also, as we see revealed in several passages, that the uh, demonic horde, the angels falling away from uh, their place before God, led by Satan, which is our common theology of the church. It's almost for sure that those forces were already in action at the time of creation. Now, here's the thing that just has made me tremble over and over this week. God made creation and he made mankind in order that he would finally remove that from existence. In other words, he could have destroyed them outright. He didn't. He chose to make this earth and this mankind that will be the theater for how he will destroy these evil forces that have risen up against him. It's really astonishing to think of the place that you and I play. And you only need to think a little right to realize, yes, so when mankind failed to do this, and remember, what do we have immediately in paradise? A dragon. Yes, a dragon is right there in paradise, right from the beginning. But you might think, hmm, it sounds like paradise to me, you know, that immediately I'm at war. You see, it, it fits. It fits. And it fits that cry that God made this world in opposition. Because you can be assured that these forces did not delight in God's creation. And so... We don't have time to go to all the passages uh, in Scripture. Uh, Some, if you want to review them, Psalm 104, Psalm 89, Psalm 93, Psalm 74. Speak in this in terms of God destroying the monster or Rahab or Leviathan. And there'll be this continuity of how he destroyed them in creation and he destroyed them in Exodus, looking forward to when he will finally destroy them forever. But there's this wonderful continuity. What's interesting about that is in the uh, pagan uh, accounts, creation occurred always in conflict, okay? Uh, Good versus evil kind of thing. And you'd think that the psalmist would just say, well, forget that. We're not going to even hint at that. But they don't. They allow that to uh, flavor what they say about creation. Kind of like Paul when he's talking about the pagan philosophers and he quotes one of them to the pagans in Acts 17. And he says, as, a, as even your own philosophers have said, in him we live and move and have our being. Or as Proverbs very obviously takes from their surrounding culture so many of their wisdom ideas. But what separates them out is that they 
say, here's the beginning of wisdom, which you totally missed in all of this. It's the fear of Yahweh. It's the worship of Yahweh. And you have no wisdom unless you have Yahweh. So there's a kind of common grace that is crystallized and and used uh, even in Revelation. So here is God overcoming the avenger, overcoming uh, all that would oppose. You can see a hint of it in Genesis 1 where it says that the world was in chaos, darkness, and barren. And God entered into it to create light and order and fruitfulness. And so here the psalmist is saying, in the light of the enemy and avenger, which we have just been lamenting over for the Psalms before, you have established strength. You've established a a fortress and a stronghold. And it will hold and it will ultimately defeat the enemies. So that in the God-man Jesus, it says in Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he will reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. That's where it's headed. But it began at creation with the establishment of the sovereignty of God in this world. And no matter what confusion and darkness and horrible things we see in this world, here is our promise that he is he began reigning at the beginning. He is reigning now and he will reign through his son until all of it is gone. And he removes all sin and pain from this world and every knee will bow. Now, a further fascinating thing is that he says, out of the mouth of babes and infants. How does that fit in? It fits in this way. He is saying that in the sound of a baby crying, the simple sound of a baby crying, God has established this as a bulwark, as a, as a stronghold to declare this is the definition of the future. Babies, the ongoing extent of humanity and redeemed humanity until that final day when the true son is born in Christ, who's Christ Jesus, and delivers his people from sin. But even in creation, the cry of a baby is the declaration That God is sovereign in this world. That makes me tremble. Now, I don't suggest that you're on the plane, your baby's crying, you say, hey, sovereignty of God right here. You know, they might not get the point, you know, immediately, but but it is an amazing statement. Established stronghold through the mouths of babes and The very existence is God showing forth his life-giving strength in this world that stands as a testimony against all that would come against him and his sovereign rule. And then, children, a particular word to you on this. Um, Jesus uses this in a particular way, as you may remember when he was coming into Jerusalem. And people were praising him. And 
the Pharisees, who at that point are the enemies of God, opposed this singing. Jesus quoted this verse. He says, haven't you heard that the children will even sing my praises? And what's beautiful about that is here is the creator God entering into the place where he will lay down his life and demonstrate his royal love for his people. He's coming in and he says, these children are declaring the stronghold, the beautiful praise of God over and against all enemies. And so, children, for you, this is an amazing thing. You know, when the lights go out at night, it can be really pretty scary. And it, usually it's uh, like Calvin, it's when the lights are out that you start imagining something's under your bed, right? Because <clears throat> it's dark. <clears throat> and when this happens, we, we uh, try to f- find our way out. We try to find matches, light a candle to throw back the darkness. And Satan has his people in darkness. And where has he lit a candle that lights into that darkness? Where has he established a castle, a stronghold to stand against his enemies? Jesus says it's in the very mouth of children. The very mouth of children that would sincerely love and honor God. It is a declaration the enemy is not going to ultimately have a foothold in this world because children are praising this God. What a declaration of sovereignty through the mouth of children so that these are kind of milit- these are definitely military terms. We are in the war. We are in the battle. And as we worship him and adore him, We manifest like soldiers on a battlefield, lined up not against God, but for God. That's our privilege, to show him forth uh, in this way. Well, more briefly, he then turns the corner. He wonders, what is man that you're mindful, that you care for him? It would seem like man would be this little dot down here on this, if, if this is a grain of sand and the moon is a speck of sand, what in the world is man in all of this, right? And yet, you're mindful of him. You care for him. You give him constant, undivided attention. This, when he answers, when he asks, what is man? It's usually reserved for inanimate objects, Right? Almost as though he's saying, what are measly human beings that you would pay us any attention at all? But you have given us royal dignity. You've made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. Probably is referring to God and the whole heavenly court that man is now under that heavenly court, the representative of God on earth. And so he speaks in similar kingly terms of mankind as he has about God. Different but similar. So he's not divine, not even close to divine, but he does have kingly royal 
status. Not just dominion over, as it spreads out, the domestic animals, but he even regards the monsters of the sea. That's part of your realm as well. Those are also your subjects, O king and queen. These belong to you for your care and your oversight. Understood, of course, as Psalm 72 talks about the king. What does the king do? He guards the poor. He stands for justice. He protects the oppressed. We kings and queens should be caring for this world. It's entrusted to us to draw forth its resources in the wisest way. To, cult, to build culture with all that he has given us and to enter into the joy of this creation and the, crea- and the culture that God has given us. And so this is our kingly status. Our value and dignity doesn't come from something within us. It's been conferred on us from God. It comes outside of us. He is what he has done for us, not what we could do for ourselves And, of course, this applies to all peoples. This puts kings in their place. Now, you're not the only king. Every child, every person is born a king, born to royalty. Why? Because we are in the image of God. So, it doesn't just say that God cares for us. It demonstrates how he cares for us. It's interesting, even small children, and everybody knows this, though they have their periods of laziness, they, when you want them to clean their room, they don't and all this. But there's this other aspect of where they want to help, they want to contribute, they want to be valuable, they want to do things themselves. There's this godlike royalty, even from the beginning to exercise their influence in this world. That's the way God has made us so that we have this glorious place. And really, you can't even say man until you've said God. We have no understanding of who we are until we have some understanding of God because we're in his image. We're to be like him. We're to manifest him. We have no meaning out, outside of that. And so, Hebrews 2 comes to this same passage. So, here you have in Psalm 8 a reflection on Genesis 1. It was so cool because he enlarges on the meaning of Genesis 1. Well, he, the writer of Hebrews, and you can read that on your own, <clears throat> contemplates Psalm 8, specifically quotes Psalm 8. And when it says that you've put all things under his feet, the the, uh, writer of Hebrews says, but right now we see that all things are not under mankind's feet. And we could draw that out some to say, as we talked about this in Sunday school class, you're the ruler over the earth. Well, why does the earth end up eating you in the end, (laughs) swallowing you up. Some ruler you are. (laughs) That this place that you're to rule over, you end up just dust in it. It destroys you. You don't rule it in the end. Whatever contributions you may make in the meantime, you in the end are weak and you're no ruler. It's, It's almost as though creation itself 
has said to us as mankind, as I'm just saying this as a kind of metaphor, no, you're not the ruler of this world. If you're not going to worship God, if you're not going to do this for the glory of God, you're, you're done for. We're not going to have you. But isn't it amazing that all of creation, as we read in Romans 8, is waiting for the revelation of the children of God in that final day when in our restored uh, bodily glory and we're made clean and perfect like Christ, we will be the rulers of the world forever and ever. And it says creation can't wait for that day. Can't wait for the restoration of its kings and queens. Because their demise meant the demise of creation. And it meant that their kings and queens would actually be swallowed up in the creation. What a terrible blasphemy of what was meant to be. And so, in Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, In his death, tasting death, Bearing the punishment for our sins. He's raised from the dead. He is the one man who was perfect. The one God man who now rules the world. And though we must say it could not be apart from God. It is God from beginning to end. He became man to defeat the enemy. That's the significance of being humans. God himself became man. That was the theater. That was the circumstance in which he would defeat the enemy. As the man on earth shedding blood for his people. And he is the first of, as we've already said, his brothers and sisters who are heirs with him. Who inherit the kingdom with him and who reign with him forever. And so, our kingship, which is declared here, but Hebrews comes back and says, yeah, but, yeah, but, it had to be redeemed in Christ, but it has been redeemed in Christ. And so, God has shown not only his goodness to us in creation, but he's shown his goodness to us in redemption, to restore us in our creation. So, see, when he gets to this last word, When he comes back to, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It has this fuller meaning in it. It's not just your majesty as shown in the earth, how majestic it is. Yes. Now, how majestic that you would include us in your purpose. That ultimately you would use us, even the crying out of babies to announce That we are the instrument by which you will defeat that horde of demons that came against you. And so it is in the redemption of mankind that we see in the end that Satan and all who follow him are cast into the lake of fire forever. And that story that began with the rebellion of the angels before creation ends at the end of our history as we know it and we're ushered into the new heavens and the new earth as the restored kings and queens psalm 8 is it declares the majesty of god but it is just full of majesty
full of majesty and meaning for every human being. And again, I would ask you, if you do not trust in Christ, hopefully you can see you're outside of this whole purpose of God to redeem his creation and then to use us as lights to see others come to know this glorious God who would give himself so freely in his own son for the forgiveness of sins, for the restoration and to fellowship with this God so that now we can live out our lives fully in this creation and all of our God-given responsibilities in the presence of this God, delighting in this God, saying over and over, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We hope and pray that you will entrust yourself to this glorious, glorious Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we we have degraded ourselves by turning away from our place that you have given us as rulers under you of this glorious creation. Yet, at the greatest sacrifice to yourself, you came after us And as you said, you will have a people. And Lord, it will be through your people, through Jesus Christ, that this world is restored. We are astonished that you would call us to this. So that even it is said of us, what is is said of Christ in Psalm 2, that he will smash the nation's Like a clay pot, it is said of us in Revelation. Because we do it in Christ. In the kingship we have in Christ. And whereas it says that you will put all of your enemies under your feet, Paul can also say that God will soon, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So that indeed... In the Lord's Prayer, you deliver us from the evil one. Your kingdom does come. And we, Lord, astonishingly, are part of that salvation, part of your people, a part of that kingdom forever. Thank you, Lord, for such love and such sacrifice. O glorious, glorious King. Amen.